Well, let's pray together. Father, it is good to know you. And Father, we are grateful that you have come on a rescue mission for us through your son, Jesus, and that we are able to know him and worship him. Father, I pray that our knowledge and love of you through Christ would be evident in the way that we treat one another and the way that we resolve our conflicts with one another. Help us to see that and to be uh, captured by the vision of that that is before us in your word today. So open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. Father, we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I first started teaching, I was at a small college in a different state, and it was a little Christian college that had been started by a, um, a pastor in a downtown megachurch, and so there was this ongoing relationship between this little college and this large megachurch, and I was teaching at the college, and I was a member of, of the church, and over the years, the relationship between the church and the college became pretty rocky. And the tension was not so much between the members of the church and the students or the professors, but between the leaders of the two different institutions, the pastor and, and the president. No matter who held those positions, it seemed like, there was this recurring strain that was going on between the, the, the two leaders. And during my last year of teaching at this little college, we went through another season of this intense strain between the two leaders of the institutions. And, and in this go-round, the dispute was over a particular piece of property. And so the president claimed the property belonged to the college, and its assets all belonged to the college, and the pastor claimed the property and its assets all belonged to the church. And so there emerged this kind of quiet cold war between the president and the pastor, over this series of, of, of months. At one point, the, the pastor tried to sell the asset and seize the assets, and, and um, the president headed him off at the past, interposed, and, and stopped it from happening. And so they went on like this, sort of punching and counterpunching in private for a while. The awkward thing was is that we were all still going to the same church together. So Sunday after Sunday, we're all showing up. Even this kind of Cold War is unfolding uh, during the week. kind of worked, though, because in a megachurch, you can go for a long time without seeing people that you don't want to have to see. But it wasn't good. It was pretty awful, even though it was a, a private dispute. At least it was for a while. That all changed near the end of my time there when the two leaders began making remarks to newspaper reporters and began criticizing one another um, in the press. And when that happened, all the personal and legal jostling that had been going on behind the scenes came out into the open uh, before the entire city. And so the dispute became known to everybody in, in the community. And I remember thinking at the time, even though I had a particular opinion about the dispute, too, um, I remember thinking at the, at, at the time that the important issue was not really the, the disposition of whatever that particular asset was. The most important issue 
I thought, seemed to have been lost on everyone. And that issue was that Christ's name and his gospel was being dragged through the mud because of our inability to resolve our disputes in the church. Jesus says that the world will know that we are his followers by how we love one another. If people look at us and they see us resolving our disputes and putting one another's needs before our own, if they see us trying to outdo one another and honoring one another, if they see us weeping with those among us who weep and rejoicing with those among us who rejoice, if they see that, they will know that we love one another. And they will know that we are who we say we are, disciples of King Jesus. But if they see us fighting with one another and gossiping about one another and complaining about one another and trying to take advantage of one another and to get our fair share of the pie from one another, if they see us trying to exact a pound of flesh from one another, what's the watching world going to conclude? about us are they going to say oh wow i bet that that christianity thing must really be true no that's not what they're going to conclude about us what they're going to conclude about us is that wow those people are just as pathetic as the rest of us nothing different there just a bunch of phony baloney pie in the sky religion do you think it matters whether or not we love one another in the church. John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. If you think it matters, and Jesus says it does matter, then our ability to resolve disputes and conflicts among ourselves takes on a kind of existential importance for the mission of this church. They will either see Jesus in our conflicts or they will not. And so the question is, is which one is it going to be for us? Now, I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to look at those first 11 verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In these verses, Paul is addressing some within the Corinthian church who had let their disputes get totally out of hand. And it was so bad that they were actually, some of them, hauling one another off to secular law courts. To, re to resolve their disputes. <clears throat> and as you look at chapter 6, these first 11 verses, you might think, well, isn't this kind of a change of subject from what he was just talking about in chapter 5, the guy who was committing sexual immorality? It's actually not a change of subject. Chapter 5 was about whether or not the church was going to be the church and have the competence to resolve its own problems within the community. Chapter 6 is about the same thing. It's a different particular instance, but it's the same thing. Is the church going to be competent to judge these problems that come up within the community? Chapter 5, they were failing to be disciplined and holy. In chapter 6, they are failing to resolve their own internal disputes. In both chapters, they are failures that harm the witness of the church to those in the watching world. And so in these 11 verses, Paul tells the Corinthians... You're not supposed to be hauling one another into court. You don't do this. And he gives um, several reasons for this. And I've, I've boiled them down to three reasons here. Here are the three reasons. The reasons that we don't haul one another off into court is because the saints are competent to judge in verses 1 through 3. 
The saints are compromised by lawsuits in verses 4 through 8. And the saints are called into a new identity in verses 9 through 11. That's it. We don't take each other to court because we're competent to judge. Because doing that compromises us. And because we've been called into a new identity. So look at the first thing here in verses 1 through 3. The saints are competent to judge. Paul says in verse 1, When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now, Paul's not really asking a question that requires an answer here. This is a rhetorical question. Kind of like when a parent looks at a disobedient child and says, how dare you talk to your mother that way? When a dad asks that to a child, he's not really asking a question. He's making a statement meant to communicate a certain level of outrage about what the child has just done. And that's what Paul, I think, intends here. Paul knows that there are grievances among the members of the church in Corinth. And he's confronting the fact that believers are addressing their grievances with one another in a scandalous way. And he's saying, when somebody has a grievance against a brother, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous? And that phrase, go to law, means go to a law court. It implies a formal tribunal where people come and they bring their conflicts before a judge. And that judge will render a verdict on who is right, who is wrong, who has to pay what to make the situation right again. And Paul's incredulous. He cannot believe that two brothers in Christ would submit themselves to be judged by a secular law court, which is presided over by what he calls, quote, the unrighteous, meaning unbelievers, people who aren't Christians. And so Paul wants to know why they would look to secular courts for justice rather than looking to the saints to decide these cases looking to the church, the congregation of God's people. Now, Paul is incredulous about this because he believes that the saints, the church, are competent to render the judgments that are needed in these cases. Now, having said that, we want to make something clear here. Paul is not saying that there's never an occasion for a Christian to be judged by a secular law court. He's not talking about what we would call criminal offenses He's talking about what we would call civil offenses. And I want to make a distinction here because I don't want anybody to go away from here misunderstanding what I'm saying right now. A criminal offense, a crime, is a behavior that society regards as offending not just a private victim or a specific victim, but society as a whole. And so it is, as it were, a crime against the state. So if you kill somebody or if you shoplift, those are criminal offenses. Against the social order, they have to be sanctioned, adjudicated, and punished by legal authorities. A civil offense, on the other hand, is a wrongdoing committed against an individual that is not viewed by the law as a threat against the social order. And so if two neighbors have a dispute, let's say about a fence, one guy says the other guy's built a fence on his side of the property, the one guy can take the other to court to have him move his fence to kind of you know, decide where that property line is. And there might be a fine or a sanction, but there's not going to be any jail time likely for that. But if those same two neighbors have a dispute because one guy assaults the other guy's wife, that's a criminal offense, not just against the victim or even the victim's husband, but against the entire social order. You don't assault another person. 
And that guy who, who assaults someone is going to be tried and if found guilty, thrown into jail. So Paul is not talking about what we would call criminal cases here. So the church is not supposed to be holding murder trials or assault trials and then dispensing uh, punishments like a secular law court would. That's why if you come to us and confess to us a crime like assaulting a spouse or a child, for instance, there's going to be church discipline involved with that, but we're also going to report you to the police. We don't conceal crimes here, okay? Paul says in Romans 13 that the governing authorities do not bear the sword for nothing. They are ministers of God to inflict wrath upon evildoers. So Paul's not talking here about those kinds of criminal offenses. We don't handle those just in-house alone. Paul's talking about civil offenses, the kinds of disputes that arise between people about money, property, contracts, and the like. When it comes to people having conflict over those kinds of things, Paul says to the church, how dare you take your dirty laundry to be sorted out by unbelievers rather than to be sorted out by the church. In essence, he's saying, don't sue each other like this. Settle this. Settle these things within the church insofar as you can do so. Paul believes that the church, the regenerate community of the redeemed, is competent to settle these kinds of disputes. And he offers two lines of evidence to prove the competency of the saints to preside over these cases. Look at verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is, judged, is, is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? And so Paul's drawing on this well-known biblical teaching that God's people will one day rule and reign with God's Messiah. Go back and look at Daniel chapter 7. Verses 18, verse 22, the prophet says, But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, for all ages to come. The ancient of days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Jesus himself, Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging 12 tribes of Israel. Paul saying, look, we all know this. As saints of the Most High God, you're going to be ruling and reigning and judging the world. And you are supposed to be modeling now to the world what you will be doing then in the age to come. How can you not settle these disputes yourselves? And, and Paul's right about this, obviously. If the Spirit of God is among us, then that means there is a spirit of wisdom and discernment among us. And through that spirit, we are up to this. But he offers a second line of evidence. Not only will we judge the world, he says, do you not know that we are to judge angels in verse 3? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Now, as far as I know, that particular statement is unprecedented in Scripture. I don't think there's anywhere else that talks about us judging angels. Paul's the only one who says this in, in those terms in the Bible. But Paul may be drawing an inference from the fact 
that one day all things are going to be subjected to Christ. He says that in 1 Corinthians 15. And angels are a part of all things. And if we're going to be ruling and reigning with Christ over all things, then the judgment would, of course, include angels. Whatever, wherever he's getting this, Paul's point is pretty simple. The church has competence as God's spirit-filled community to settle these kinds of disputes because if we're going to judge the world and angels in the last day, then we can settle disputes among ourselves in the present day. That's the point. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, there, there's a similar kind of thing that I've seen unfold like this uh, just in my own household with my kids. Um, our kids are having disputes all the time. They're having arguments all the time about this or that item or about who gets to sit in what chair or who gets to sit in a special spot by the Christmas tree, who gets to play with this particular toy. And, and when these disputes arise, what the children often do is they immediately appeal to the Supreme Court, me or Susan. Daddy, it was my turn to take the first bath. Daddy, I was supposed to be able to sit in the special place by the Christmas tree. But she jumped in first. And these things are just constantly coming on. And so there's disputes about trivial things that they're bringing to us. And sometimes we have to step in and we have to settle it. We render a judgment. But there are other times, and more and more of these times actually, where I have to look them in the eyes and I say to them, you need to go to your sibling and you need to work this out. You two need to come together without asking me for help. Now, why do I do that? I do that because they're getting older and there are times that I can tell that they are looking to me for a resolution that they are competent to settle for themselves if they will treat one another the way Susan and I have told them to treat one another. They have the wherewithal, increasingly, if they will just exercise a little bit of unselfishness and self-control, they have the wherewithal to settle these little disputes. I think Paul is saying a similar kind of thing right here. If we are who we say we are, if we've really been given the Spirit of Christ and the Word of God to govern our lives together, then we have everything we need to do this. We have the competence to do this if we would but exercise the will to do this. So what Paul is saying here doesn't merely apply to disputes that might end up in a courtroom, okay? I hope you see where I'm going with this. What Paul is saying here applies to any dispute that might arise among us. If we are being led by the Spirit of God and submitting ourselves to the Word of God, we can resolve and heal all kinds of disputes that out there in the world might just seem to be an impasse. But it's going to require some things on our part. Let me mention three things here. First of all, it's just, we're just going to have to realize in Kenwood Baptist Church, okay, here, we're going to have to realize that disputes and conflicts are going to happen. Okay, it's just going to happen. Expect it. We're going to offend each other. We're going to wrong each other and sin against each other. We're trying not to do that, but it's going to happen. And we can't be surprised that this happens. So it's not a matter of if, but when it happens. We're all sinners, okay? And so the question that we're trying to ask is how are we going to respond, respond when it happens, not if it happens? So you have to be ready for this. That's the first thing. The second thing is we have to be committed to the kind of self-discipline that the Lord calls us to, which means we have to be the right 
we have to have the right kind of character and holiness before we ever come to the dispute. That means that we try to keep our disputes as small as we can. If there are two parties within the church who have a conflict, they need to work it out privately. They don't need to gossip about it to other members of the church. We should never air out our grievances with a third party before making every attempt to resolve it privately first. So we have to be committed to that kind of self-discipline. That's the second thing. The third thing is we have to be committed to the kind of church discipline that the Lord calls us to. And so what that means is, is if two parties come together and they can't come to a, re a resolution, that means if there's no resolution, one or both are sinning. Okay, if, if there's a total impasse, um, it's possible that you can't come to an agreement about an issue, but you, come to, you, you can come to terms with one another personally where there's no sin. But if, you, if there's no resolution, there's no personal bridge that's, 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 um, that's been built, there's probably sin emerging on one or other side at that point. And if there's an impasse, and if one or both parties are refusing to repent of sin, a third party can be brought in at that point to help adjudicate. And if one or both parties sin and refuse to reconcile, others can be brought in to bear witness, to confront, and to call one or both to repentance. And if that fails, then the matter can be brought before the whole church. That's the process that, that, that the Lord Jesus lays out for us in, in Matthew chapter 18. We care about disputes and when members sin against one another because Jesus told us to care about that. And he gave us what we needed to resolve these kinds of disputes if we'll follow those, those instructions. People say, golly, you're turning every trivial matter into a matter of church discipline because we're always having these private kind of reconciliation things. Well, that, that's right. Um, it, a lot of times people look at Matthew 18 and they think that, wow, that first confrontation is this formal thing. I think Matthew 18 kind of confrontations are the kinds of things that are probably happening a lot in the church. We just don't know about it because it never goes past that because it doesn't have to. Okay, but... But that's the normal way we're supposed to resolve our conflicts is privately and in a, in a healthy place. That just happens privately all the time. So Paul says that you don't want to drag each other into court because we're the saints are competent to judge. But the second thing Paul says is that saints are compromised by lawsuits. You don't want to go to take each other to court because the saints are compromised by lawsuits. Look at verse 4. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? And the wording is actually much stronger in the original than what comes across here. It's not just that the secular unrighteous judges have no standing in the church. It's that they're disdained or of no account in the church. These unrighteous judges are not members of the congregation of God's people, which means they don't have the spirit. They don't have God's righteous word and law as the ultimate standard. They are, to some extent, outside of the norms and the values of God's kingdom. If they do show some wisdom that accords with God's ways, it's a matter of common grace, and, and they might hit, depending on where you live, they might hit as much as they miss. With God's spirit and revelation, the saints have more resources for discerning justice and righteousness than the best that the world has to offer in terms of justice. 
So why would you go outside of the church to resolve these kinds of disputes? Paul says in verse 5, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? Now here Paul's getting a little punchy with them. Um, He's confronting their conceits again. You remember all that business in chapter 1 about how the Corinthians were admiring worldly wisdom? They loved teachers who displayed wisdom of word. They probably even thought of themselves as wise and sophisticated. And here Paul's saying to them, I thought you said you were wise. Isn't there at least one wise person in here who can help a brother out? Do you see what he's, you see what he's saying here? Where's your wisdom now? When you're standing in the courtroom waiting for somebody else to render a judgment when you should be standing before the saints. Is there any wise people among the saints that can adjudicate this? You've shown your willingness to be wise on the world's terms. Can't you be wise on God's terms and resolve these conflicts? But look what he says in verse 6. But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? And, And here Paul's beginning to show why he believes this behavior is so destructive. It's not just bad for the the parties to the dispute. It's a scandal in full view of unbelievers. Think about this. As the church, we're supposed to be giving unbelievers reasons to repent and believe the gospel. We're not supposed to be giving them reasons to retrench and reject the gospel. Every time we treat each other like dirt like that, we give the enemies of God an occasion to blaspheme. We're not supposed to be giving them ammunition for the flesh in our disputes. And so it's a scandal to bring this kind of thing before unbelievers. And that's why Paul says what he says in verse 7. He says to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? You following Paul here? He's saying it would be better to lose your dispute in private than than to dishonor your Savior in public. After all, your life is not your own. Your life does not consist in your possessions or your assets or your contract rights. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ is your life. And if you have to choose between honoring your Savior by suffering wrong and dishonoring your Savior by suing your brother, then you choose honoring Christ every time. Now, that's not a choice that's going to regularly come before you because the church can settle these matters. But if you have to choose, you choose honoring Christ. Paul says the problem is they're not doing that. In fact, they're doing the opposite. Look at verse 8. But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. He says, shouldn't you rather be wronged? Well, they're not suffering wrong. They're causing the wrong. They're not being ripped off. They're the ones ripping people off. They're doing it to their very own brothers and sisters in Christ Christ, through, apparently, the court system. Court system in the first century had some differences, but also some similarities to our own legal system, which seems to favor those who have a lot of money. 
The more money you have, the better it works for you. And in the first century, in this context, wasn't that different. If you, had, if you had some money, you could probably pay what they called a retor to come in and argue your case. One of these guys could come in and also maybe arrange a bribe for the judge. So the rich had a certain kind of a leg up on the people who didn't have as much money. Some commentators think that's probably what the issue was here. You've got some, some uh, more wealthy people perhaps taking advantage of people who, 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 uh, people who can't defend themselves as well in a court system. And so they're being exploited. And so that's why Paul says, you're wronging one another when you do this. Whatever it was, Paul says, they're taking each other to court and it has to stop because they're wronging and defrauding one another. Now imagine this scenario with me. Let's say after church today, I come out to my car and I find a huge Kentucky Wildcat sticker stuck on it. Now, uh, and it's stuck on my car, and it's not a small sticker. It's, it's like a foot in diameter. And it's not on my bumper or on the glass. If somebody stuck it on my door, okay? Immediately, what pops into my mind is, you know, and this actually really happened. This is an imaginary story, but this part really happened. Mike France once put a sticker on my car. It's still on there right now on the back windshield. So I remember that. And, um, and I remember Mike Francis, a big Kentucky Wildcats fan. And so I look at that, and I go, Mike did it. But I don't want to give him the satisfaction of hearing me complain about it, so I just drive home without a word, and I'll just take it off, and I'll never say anything. So he won't even have the joy of ticking me off. But when I get home and try to get it off, it doesn't come off easy. And in fact, I end up ruining the paint job underneath the sticker trying to get it off. And at this point, I'm not laughing anymore. I'm mad. And I start to stew a little bit. And so I call up Mike and I say, you're going to pay for my car door. And he's like, what? And I say, you're going to pay. I said, don't play dumb. You put that sticker on my car door. I know you did that. He says, no, I didn't. I say, yes, you did. He says, no, I didn't. I say, yes, you did. And we have this intelligent conversation for five minutes. <laughs> and finally, I say, fine, then I'm going to see you in court. You could talk to my attorney, Scott Anderson. Now Scott's involved. <laughs> We're going to wear you out. Now, what would happen if people find out about that? How about the judge who has to look at us and knows that this is unfolding before two brothers from a church? Because it happened at church. What about the lawyers? Who have to view this dispute? What about our families? What about our kids? What about the visitors to this church? What about our friends and neighbors who find out that I can't reconcile with my friend and brother, my friends? Do you think any of them are going to take the gospel I profess seriously when I'm undermining that gospel by the way I'm treating Mike? Even if Mike did it, what would be better? To be out several hundred bucks or whatever the cost is or to get my money for him no matter what. If you think getting the money is the most important thing, even if it means going to court, you're not thinking with the mind of Christ. That is not the most important goal. The most important goal is to honor Christ even if I have to suffer wrong in the short term. 
That's the most important goal. And so you have to ask yourself, am I really willing to do that if it comes down to it? How many of us are really fine with all the love your neighbor and glorify God stuff so long as it doesn't cost you anything? But the minute glorifying Christ causes me to lose what's mine, I determine that getting my own back is the most important thing. So that's kind of where the rubber meets the road, right? It's a real test for us. Because... There's a question if our commitment to Christ is such that we could be cheated if it came to that. Well, Paul's saying we shouldn't be taking each other to court like this. We shouldn't be doing it because we're competent to judge and it compromises us. It compromises our integrity as God's people. It compromises our witness to the community when this happens. Last thing. The last reason you don't want to go to court is because the saints are called into a new identity. Verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, this verse is where something important can be lost in translation if you're not paying attention. Throughout this passage, Paul's been using different variations of the word unrighteous. And it starts in verse 1. Paul's, he just can't believe that they would be suing each other and going before, quote, the unrighteous, those unrighteous secular judges. He can't believe that. And he says, he comes back to it again in verse 7. He says, why not rather be wronged? You can't see it in English, but it's, a, it's, a, it's the, the, the base of the word is the same of what he said in verse 1. To be wronged is to be treated unrighteously. Same thing in verse 8. He charges them, you wrong, which means you treat one another unrighteously. So he just, he's been talking about the unrighteous throughout this passage. Verse 8, he says, you're treating each other unrighteously. And now, right after he accuses them of treating one another unrighteously, he says in verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you see what he did there? Paul says that by being greedy and suing one another in secular law courts, they're behaving like people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he gives them a litany of the kinds of people who are unrighteous and who will be excluded from God's kingdom. Look at verse 9. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And look at, the, look at that list in verse 9. He talks about the sexually immoral. That's anybody who breaks one of God's law, laws concerning sexual morality. Um, it, the old-timey word for it is a fornicator. Um, look at the next word, idolaters, those who worship images devoted to false gods, a practice that often actually in, in, involves sexual immorality. Adulterers, those who break the marriage covenant by pursuing a sexual relationship with somebody else's spouse. That last phrase, men who practice homosexuality, it's a bit of a loose rendering. Literally, it's two different words. It's uh, neither those soft ones nor the man betters, those men who take another man to bed. 
And that last term, the man-betters, is a term that doesn't appear anywhere else in the Greek literature until Paul uses it here. It looks like he's coined a phrase based off of Leviticus. It's the same uh, word parts from Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 20. Where in, where in verse 22, where, where um, the law says, you shall not lie with a male as, as with a woman. It's an abomination. Leviticus 20:13, same thing. Ah, oh, thank you, brother. That is a thoughtful pastor. <laughs> you needed it more than I do, right? <clears throat> All right. So, so Paul's simply referring to the Old Testament's prohibition on that particular form of immorality. He's saying that those who live in it unrepentantly do not inherit the kingdom of God. The list goes on in verse 10. But look at verse 10. It's this part of the list that he begins to hit a little closer to the current situation at hand. Because he says, neither the thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Look at that. Not only does Paul say thieves and swindlers don't inherit the kingdom, he says those who are greedy don't inherit the kingdom. It's not just doing the thieving and the swindling, it's the, it's the disposition of the heart that leads to the, the swindling. They don't inherit the kingdom. How do you think that would have landed on these readers who Paul just said were stealing from one another and treating one another unrighteously? Paul knew exactly what he was doing here. He's saying that these greedy thieves are the kinds of people who don't inherit the kingdom. And that's how they're behaving. He's trying to say to them, that's a big problem, right? These kinds of people don't in inherit the kingdom. So it's, it's, it's getting kind of dark here because now there's kind of this question mark. Are we going to inherit the kingdom? Paul lets a little bit of light in here at verse 11. And he expresses some confidence that they will, because he says this. He says, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. That's a glorious were, isn't it? Paul's saying that you were one thing before you trusted Christ, but now you have been transformed into another thing after trusting Christ. You were unrighteous. Which means that Paul knows, and get this, this ought to make you feel good, okay, here in church today. Paul knows that he's addressing a church that's, that's composed of people who were formerly defined by all those sins he just listed off. Sexual immorality, homosexuality, thieving, swindling. That's who you were, church. He knows that that's what he's looking at. That's who they were in the flesh, but that is not who they are in Christ. They have been given a whole new identity. So what are they now? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were one thing, unrighteous, but you are not that now. And that washing, I think, is probably referring to their baptism which was their entry point into the faith and their membership in the congregation of God's people. They were sanctified, which means that they've been set apart from their sin and set apart unto God's use and purposes. They were justified, which means they are now no longer under condemnation because of their sin, but they have been declared righteous because of Christ's sacrificial death and resurrection on their behalf. They are no longer dirty, 
common and unrighteous. They are washed, sanctified, and righteous in the name of Jesus. And it says, by the spirit of our God, they are no longer in the flesh, but in the spirit. Therefore, they do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Their new identity in Christ means that they must live a totally new life through Christ. Their behavior is not to be defined by what they were, but by what they are. You see what Paul's saying here? I'm, re I'm really concerned about this last piece that Paul leaves us with here. Because you and I are living in an age that is warring against what Paul is saying here. You and I are living in a day when we are told that no authority has a right to define who we are as persons. Our personal identity is self-constructed and self-defined. It is not God-constructed and God-defined. And so we're being told that we are what we feel ourselves to be and that our feelings are inerrant, essentially. Whatever we feel must be right. Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy said it this way back in 1992, the famous Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision. This is what he said. He said, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, of the mystery of human life. Did you get that? He, he virtually makes it into a patriotic duty, a human right to have the freedom to define yourself. If he's right, if our culture is right, then whatever I feel myself to be, that, that has implications in real life. In our current culture, um, our, so much of our disputes about sexuality are based on this. A person says, if I feel attractions for a person of the same sex, then I am gay. That is my identity. If I feel myself attracted to both sexes, then I am bisexual. That's my identity. Never mind that some authority might say those feelings are wrong. They say, well, those feelings come naturally to me. They must be right. If you question what I feel, you're questioning what I am. And when you deny my identity, you're being hateful and bigoted and harmful to me. Do you see how this worldly theory of identity is warring against what the Bible says about this? You are not what you feel yourself to be when you are feeling wrong things. But that's what we're told about our identity today. It's just a part of the air we breathe. It's so much a part of our cultural assumptions. We hardly even realize it when we're confronting it. And that's why it's so important that we understand that we are not self-defined creatures. And as those who are in Christ, we are not self-defined creatures. God made us and redeemed us. He alone, as creator and redeemer, has the, the right to define our identity. And until we embrace that identity, Paul says, such were some of you, but that's not who you are now. You're behaving like something that you were, not like what you are. God alone has the right to define that. And until we embrace that identity as he defines it, we're going to be indistinguishable from the unrighteous who don't know God. That's the issue here. And so the question for us is not 
What comes naturally to me? Because guess what? You know what's going to come naturally to you? Doing wrong to your brother. You're going to feel right when you try to exact your pound of flesh from him sometimes. And just because it feels right doesn't mean that it is right. And it may be a very a contradiction to what God made you to be and what he remade you to be in Christ. And so you're... Your, your identity is something totally opposite to what you may feel. Because God defines who you are and what his purposes for you are. And what it means for us to live together and our life together in this church. So Paul is saying we, we have to be able to resolve our disputes. Because we're competent to do this. Because we're compromised if we don't do this. And because we've been called into this new identity. I have great confidence, not ultimately in us, but in God. That his spirit is alive and well among us. And that he will sustain the spirit in us. We have great confidence, not in ourselves, but in him. So let's ask him now to help us. Father, we do pray that you would give us a humble and willing spirits not to seek our own, not to try to get what we think is ours, but to honor Christ no matter what. And Father, I, th I was thinking coming into this about all the little things and disputes and conflicts and personal offenses that people brought into this room with them today and that are unresolved. And, and, and some of them, they may be against me. You know, Father, I, we just need your help. Father, I pray that you would give us boldness and confidence and humility to have the conversations that we need to have and to run our disputes to ground. I pray you'd give us wisdom to know when to overlook an offense and not to make a thing of something. But when something has to be dealt with, I pray that you'd give us wisdom to deal with it and that there wouldn't be any cancerous divisions that spread among us because of inability to resolve conflicts. So, Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We need your help. And, Father, I pray for all those who... Um, who are here, who don't know you, that they might know that the gospel is true. And perhaps they might glimpse a little bit of its truth in the way that we treat each other. But I pray that you would help them to see Jesus Christ crucified and raised for them. Father, we pray for you to do all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.